Hi, everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we take a deeper look at the world around us because it's really important. Now, today is episode number 14, and we are discussing whether technology today or in the future will make us less human. Today's guest, I'm super happy to share with you. His name is Joe Fisher. He's a doctoral student at Columbia University, and I first encountered his work. Actually, you're probably going to hear me say this a fair bit because I first encountered a lot of people's work, our forthcoming guests this way, uh, encountered his work at a conference that I recently went to in Denver, which was the case for our guest last week as well. And I heard Joe speak. He was on a panel talking about the ethics of human enhancement and things like genetic engineering and technologies and how these will shape who we are and our societies moving into the future. And it's an enormous question. It's a very important question uh, for a wide variety of reasons. The idea of changing who we are as a species with technology, we can do things like genetically engineer ourselves, use nanotechnologies to make our bodies different, to change the way our minds function. Uh, there's, there's a lot of big questions here, politically, economically, socially, existentially, spiritually. Uh, it's a global, it's a glo truly a global issue and something that I think all of us, when we engage it, when we talk about it, when we think about it, uh, it's really important because A, we're positioning ourselves for future uh, debates and debates that are ongoing. You know, recently the cover of New Scientist was about the world's first genetically engineered babies. And again, they're tweaked, right? They're not entirely built in a lab, but their their genes have been tweaked and it is now apparent it's happening, you know? So we're preparing ourselves for these debates and we're also learning about our relationship with technology and how deeply impacted our human experiences by the technologies that we've had throughout time. So these are very, uh, very important and very interesting questions. And Joe is a fantastic speaker and human. And so I'm, I'm really excited to bring him on. Let me uh, read you a little bit about his background, like I normally do. Um, Joe is a PhD candidate in the Department of Religion at Columbia University. He earned a bachelor's from Franklin and Marshall College in religious studies before earning a master's degree and two master's degrees in religion at Columbia University. His training is in the field of North American religions and philosophy of religion, with a focus on the intersection of religion, science, and technology. His dissertation research concentrates on the human enhancement debate in the field of bioethics and how the rhetoric of human nature operates within this discourse. Joseph's research is inspired by the ways in which scientific theories and technologies, real and speculative, shape understandings of what it means to be human and what it might mean in the future. So it's a really great discussion. I don't want to draw out my chattering any longer. I want to jump right into it. I have nothing of particular importance to re report. It's mid-January. I'm very happy to be recording this podcast. If you have any ideas for guests or for what I can do to better pitch or share this with you, please do let me know. Um, and also, if you believe in what we're doing, if you believe in me, if you like me just a little bit, uh, if you could leave a review for the podcast, I would really appreciate it. Um, it really helps us with our visibility and people tend to trust me more. People tend to uh, take me more seriously when I reach out to them to bring them on as guests and to be on their own podcast and all these sorts of things um, if we have more reviews on the podcast. So you'd be helping me enormously if you wanted to reach out and, and do that. I would be really grateful. So um, that's just the stuff for me on my end. Um, and now here, I, uh, I will bring on Joe Fisher. Okay, so here is Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing well. Um, overworked, underslept, <laughs> such as the life of a graduate student. Uh, yeah. But in general, well, excited for winter break. Yeah, you're in New York, right? You're at Columbia? Mm-hmm. And I just finished my last class. I'm teaching a class called Religion and Media in America. Okay. Um, so it was sad to say goodbye to my students, but also happy teaching is done. Yeah. How did, was this your, this wasn't your first time teaching? 
Well, I've been a TA six times, uh, but this was my first course that I taught on my own. And it's something I've wanted to do for a very long time because passionate about research, but my real passion is teaching. Um, and I think that's where meaningful work gets done. Yeah. Okay. So do you think you imparted a significant amount of wisdom to these students? I hope so. I mean, part of my teaching philosophy is to really try to get them to guide the discussion. Um, so use the readings as a basis, mm -hmm. um, ask important questions, but to get them to come to the conclusions on their own and learn to think critically with each other. But yeah, I think so. At the beginning of the semester, I had them define what they thought religion was and keep those definitions to themselves. And the last day I made them reevaluate uh, and tell me what you know had changed about their, their opinions. Um, and basically all of them said it was an unstable category and they were less certain now than they had ever been. And so I thought I basically did my job. Yeah, I think that was, that was the most important thing that I learned when I studied religion, I think. Um, but, but doing religion in media, that's like highly politically relevant at the time, you know? It's yeah, and so part of what I do, it's uh, both historical and contemporary. Mm -hmm. So it's one way of narrating American religious history to take a really broad view of media. Mm -hmm. uh, everything from literary practices to digital technologies um, and thinking about media and mediation as a condition uh, of all religious activity. Mm -hmm. If you can't communicate, then you can't have religious practices, beliefs, communities. Um, and then what I try to do is take a historical issue and relate it to a contemporary issue. So we might think about the role of television in spreading prophetic religion during the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. and then compare and contrast that with the role of social media uh, in say Black Lives Matter. We're thinking about liberalism and fundamentalism in the 1920s and 30s, and then comparing that to intelligent design uh, in the current period through the lens of journalism. Um, and so just using all those different case studies and doing that kind of compare and contrast work, um, hopefully is getting them to see the study of religion and media as something that is really relevant. Right. Wow. Okay. That's like, that's kind of a trendy topic today, isn't it? It's becoming. Yeah. There's been this whole media turn in religious studies. So. Yes. Uh, I, I learned that when I read your dissertation. <laughs> I was like, oh, the media turn, okay. There's, there's yeah. just turn, you know, all these turns sort of happen. Exactly. Yeah. That's, We're that's always late to the game. I, I like, well, yeah. Yeah. Pushing the game ahead, but always feeling like we're never. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's tough when you're a PhD student because you want to create something new and innovative, but you also have to have existing conversations to intervene in. Um, and so just finding that balance. Yeah, you just have to wait another 20 years until you get tenure, and then you can actually say something. Exactly. Yeah, or you can be like me and quit academia and then just, you know, brush that, it all that, under the rug. Yeah. All the, like, intellectual arguments, you know, I turn parts of my dissertation into articles and, and a book I'm working on, and I'm just, like, cutting out footnotes. I'm like, oh, cut this, cut this, cut this. Like, yeah. here goes all my intellectual rigor. Um to make it actually readable for people. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm still trying to figure that out. The job market is so bad, um, and I really like to stay in New York, so we'll see. Wow. Hopefully I can use what I've learned uh, for something else, if not religious studies. Right, well, okay, you, well, doing religion and media, you can always become a podcaster. True. <laughs> I'll come on your podcast. <laughs> um, Speaking of which, okay, so um, I'm bringing you on because you are becoming an expert. You are an expert. Sometimes I think grad, grad students are the most expert because they do so much reading. Um, you do a lot of work at the intersection of technology and, and what it means to be human. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're studying and why? Yeah, so I work at the intersection of science, technology, and religion. 
researching human enhancement in the field of bioethics. Um, and I take a really broad view of bioethics, thinking of it as something that's not just the professional discipline, but a set of issues and concerns that spans across disciplines and also into the public sphere and the popular sphere. So, I mean, what we're beginning to see is that from genetic engineering to neural implants to engineered senescence, uh, there's this growing intellectual fascination with future technologies that appear to possess the potential to transform the human as we know it. Uh, for example, through increasing intelligence, choosing physical features, extending life. And so for both critics and advocates alike, um, and there tends to be an extreme polarization, uh, the stakes seem to be existential. And so the question that predominates this debate is, what does it mean to be human? And should we strive to be, become something more than human or remain human as we have always been? And so what I do, what I'm interested in doing is examining the language of human nature and how it operates for lay and expert theorists in what I am calling the human enhancement debate. And so I'm interested in thinking about this in rhetorical terms. Um, how do theorists of enhancement persuade their audiences uh, to pick up certain obligations, ethical obligations, through the language of human nature? And what normative and ideal accounts of the human are these arguments depending on and validating? Um, and then I think more so from a religious studies perspective, what does this tell us about the role of scientific speculation in producing ethical self-understandings in the present. Uh, past, present, future, always interconnected. It's really interesting, um, the idea that you're sort of looking how this concept of human nature is sort of like important to people, sort mm -hmm. of the fundamental assumption of what you're doing, or it's not an assumption because we see it happening all the time, but is the idea that we're somehow really compelled by the idea of what it means to be human and very sensitive to what it means to change that. Yeah. That's very interesting. You know, why? Um, I haven't thought about that before. I'm obsessed with what it means to be human. That's what I'm doing in this podcast. It's trying to make sense of what it means to be human. You know, but what, it, what is it about us that, why are we so attached to that? Isn't it an identity issue? Is it a, community identity issue? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both of those things, but I also don't think everyone is always concerned with asking that question at the explicit level. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, we have our own bias, uh, biases as academics. Uh, but one thing I, I'm really fascinated about and by in this issue is that the idea of modifying human biology uh, seems to really bring this question to the fore. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of it unsettles people and it forces them to articulate their core values and beliefs and commitments um, in the face of a real and seemingly material challenge to their human nature. Um, and so it's, it's doing that kind of existential work, I think, um, in terms of forcing people into this space of philosophical reflection. Mm. Um, one of the reasons I think the issue is so important and interesting. Yeah, so, and we're born into particular contexts. And so we tend to, I think, really radically underestimate the ways in which our cultures and technologies have sort of changed what it means to be human over time. And yeah. are there some examples of ways today? I mean, obviously we know that we use phones and they're unusual, right? They're un un quote unquote unnatural. But are there any ways today that we sort of underestimate how much we're impacted by the technologies around us? Yeah, so for example, in my religion and media course, one of the recurrent themes that we discuss is uh, the role of digital technologies and the internet. Mm. Uh, I don't think we have to jump so far to the future to think about this question. Um, so for example, in the 1980s and early 1990s, when 
the internet was first being prophesied by utopians like Stuart Brand and John Perry Barlow. It represented the dream of a free, open, and equal society. Mm. But in the past decade or so, we've seen that digital technologies and the internet are having really unexpected and adverse effects on how we relate to other people and how we engage in the political sphere. So right, there's an unprecedented amount of information at our fingertips, maybe a good, maybe a bad thing, uh, but digital platforms also enable us to gain almost complete control over our information flow. And studies suggest that much like physical migration habits where you choose to live, people tend to self-segregate on the internet based on their existing beliefs. Um, so they communicate with people they agree with and they receive news that affirms what they already hold to be true. And so this kind of radical democratization of information uh, has also led to the devaluing of expertise. Uh, we find this in critical attitudes toward the intellectual elite uh, and people being willing and uh, sometimes maybe too willing to find evidence that supports what they already believe. And so I think it's really not that surprising that radical polarization is becoming self-perpetuating and also that conspiracy theories are becoming the new norm. And so, right, I'm not lambasting the internet per se, right? We're having this wonderful podcast right now because of it, but it does represent a really interesting case study in thinking about how transformative technologies have unpredictable consequences. Um, yeah, and I think we can, you know, go through history and highlight different examples, but that's clearly one that's at the fore right now in our current political atmosphere. Yeah, so is there, do you know the, do you know the solution? Do you know, <laughs> is there a solution or are we just going to have to watch and cross our fingers? Can we like intervene, you know? Uh, this is a tough one, and my sort of go-to solution for all these issues is, at least in terms of the role of the academic, is just to continue to try to create public awareness, engage in the public humanities, um, contribute your own information, and hope it penetrates people's information flows. Um, but no, I don't think there's an easy... Uh, solution to that because you know it's a trend that's so active and it's one that seems to inhere in the ways in which we interact with our technologies but from a personal level it's I think also just trying to expand your sources of information make sure you're reading the Times and Fox News make sure you're trying to dialogue with people who have different opinions Make sure you're not just dealing with straw men, but the best forms of the opposing positions that you can find. I mean, really, I'm just kind of reinscribing the traditional uh, liberal arts goals, but I think they're still important and maybe more important than ever. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, You know, this, all this discourse that we have about human nature, right? It sort of makes me think about what we're thinking about now. We've sort of figured out how to bring out the worst in ourselves, you know? And, and because we can, we can capitalize on the worst of ourselves for the sake of our own power in a particular way, or we're manipulated, you know, by, by our relationship with power. And I'm sorry, but I have since, I have since become, you know, nothing but a walking, Foucault, you know, uh, no, I can empathize. <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> um, and by Foucault, everybody, I mean simply that I think about things in terms of power relations and, um, like our outrage, right? Like how, how can we ever transcend the fact that outrage is so compelling to us, right? Like that's, that's a very human thing. That's, I don't know the solution to that problem, right? Like we might be able to educate and put our information streams out there. And I'm trying my best with things like this podcast, but um, there are things about our human affective responses or our emotional responses that are 
very vulnerable to our technologies. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll develop in a way that lean into the better parts of our nature, but I'm also very, very skeptical. You know, I think, I think, well, yeah, I don't know, we can cross our fingers, you know, but we set up systems like schools and the judicial system and all this way sort of, and like the American constitution, right, was written knowing how bad we are with power you know, and trying really hard to create a system that helps us become the best versions of ourselves. But the internet in no way is designed to help us become the best possible versions of ourselves. And I don't think it should be per se, but there's probably questions in there somewhere. Um, yeah. And I mean, one of the things that we're seeing, especially in the younger generation uh, is that we are always already embedded in our technological systems. I mean, I can remember a time before having uh, an iPhone and a Mac um, and at least have some uh, loose sense of, you know, what a comparison between those two lifestyles looks like. But when you're interacting with your iPod, iPad, iPad at three years old, um, and you have an iPhone by eight, and your high, high school experience is completely mediated by social media uh, and digital platforms in and out of the classroom, and private tech companies are funding this as well, creating programs to uh, get computers and digital curricula in the in the classroom. Right. Um, we lose that sense of comparison. We no longer have an inside or an outside. We just have an inside. Um, and so it's, it's hard to know what to do about that. Um, but, you know, again, at the personal level, just finding ways and opportunities to disengage. Um, I mean, for example, I have a student who is uh, dealing with issues of hate mail and alt-right rhetoric and ad hominem threats and on social media. And, you know, I try not to intervene too much in their personal lives, but my advice was to disengage for a few days, stop reading, uh, spend a few days talking to the people that care about you and whom you care about. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's just little things like that. Uh, being able to disengage and gain some perspective and that will also help you realize the kinds of effects that your engagement with technologies are having on you. Joe, that's so nice. <laughs> I like that very much. Um, okay, so the kinds of technologies that you tend to specialize in more are what we call enhancement technologies, right? Things that are sort of intentionally designed to change you know who, who we are as a species in in what sort of ways do you is it are we able to predict over the coming decades like how the technologies that are coming and and what sort of changes we might start to be experiencing um yes and no i think i'm pretty skeptical of uh, the kind of certain forecasting i think that we see especially among techno enthusiasts but also critics who, you know, uh, think the issue is so important because these technologies are imminent, but it also might help just to maybe define enhancement up front. Um, and so uh, the term has been criticized a lot, uh, especially for its vagueness, but most bioethicists define uh, enhancement in contradistinction to therapy, right? So whereas therapies are medical practices that return individuals to normal or, uh, and I love and hate this term, species typical functioning, uh, <laughs> enhancements are biotech interventions that increase one's capacities, performances, dispositions to Greater, greater than normal functioning. Uh, this is sometimes called making one better than well. Um, and so one of the issues that has been most prominent and seems to be maybe most imminent is uh, intentional genetic engineering, uh, especially the real fear is germline genetic engineering when you can determine the traits of your offspring. 
Um, so right, for example, this has really made headlines uh, in the past week or so, a uh, Chinese scientist, Dr. He, uh, announced that he had gene edited twins using CRISPR-Cas9 uh, to disable the gene CCR5, uh, which makes it possible for HIV uh, to infect people's cells. Um, and this was in uh, embryos of twins. Um, and so the idea or the claim is that the twins would therefore be immune to HIV or at least HIV is a hereditary condition. And so he hasn't released scientific evidence that actually supports this claim, okay. uh, but it's really fascinating to think about the reactions among American journalists and scientists, which have been routinely really critical. And so despite the fact that this is actually a medical procedure in nature, right? Uh, the idea, and this is something quite frequent, is that it portends a new era of eugenics, right? It may start with medicine, it may start with therapy, but certain technologies uh, inherently pose a slippery slope. Um, and so, you know, for me personally, I think, whether it's in America or China, the latter of which has much more lax policies when it comes to biomedicine and biotech. Um, these are to some extent inevitable. And so it's really important that we don't dismiss them out of hand, but work to potentially mitigate their negative effects. Um, and so for example, I think and this has been really popular in bioethics, privileging the principle of autonomy. Um, and we need to be careful that when it comes to biotech, we're not just fitting it into the customer service model of healthcare, uh, that we're not focusing on positional benefits like good looks, um, and that we're really thinking about political regulation and the unpredictability of all of this. Hmm. Um, you are some cultures more concerned with these kinds of questions than others. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Are like Americans really uptight about it? I would imagine so. Yeah. Um, and maybe for good reason. Uh, and it takes place. The sort of skepticism has different political motivations. Um, we're very aware of the historical trauma of the Holocaust and anything associated with the term eugenics uh, seems to be on its face problematic, which is also fascinating because you see some proponents of enhancement actually trying to reclaim the term, proposing something that might be called liberal eugenics. Um, which rather than a top-down model is a bottom-up model where individuals get to enact their freedom by uh, choosing the qualities of their offspring. At the same time, you also have uh, a traditional set of conservative concerns in the U.S. context about uh, the sanctity of life and the sanctity of the unborn, uh, which fits with this long-standing uh, abortion or pro-life discourse. Um, and so we saw that, for example, when it came to stem cell research and the fact that under the Bush administration, uh, new, new stem cell research was essentially banned. Um, and so while I think more and more uh, this sort of biotech research and work is taking place in the private market. Uh, companies are springing up left and right. Um, the US definitely has more experience uh, working to regulate uh, the development and use of those kinds of technologies, whether they exist or they're just speculative uh, in terms of research. Yeah, something that concerns me is I feel like we tend to have very loose and selective memory. And I, um, I think something that has really benefited the West and the 
relative amount of peace that the world has experienced in the last several decades, relatively speaking, of course, um, is that we do have a memory, you know, and Germany as a, is an incredibly peaceful country because their memory is so strong, you know, of, of the great wars. And I fear that the further away we get, the easier it's going to be to think that, to be compelled by the things about these technologies that are sexy or powerful or help us in any way in our positioning on the social hierarchy and all these sorts of things. I feel like it could be, I feel like it could be so easy to sacrifice our memory for the sake of getting whatever it is that we think we're going to get from this. Um, I don't personally understand the appeal, uh, but I, I don't really understand children period. So, um, so that, that doesn't, you know, sort of the desperation with which people sort of cling to these ideas or, or want to, you know, like I want to have a baby with green eyes. It's like, um, but it would become so easy for our, for our political stratifications to enter. And also, of course, entry to these kinds of technologies is an issue, right? Like, yeah, they're obviously going to start out being enormously expensive. Yeah. And one of the justifications, which I think is deeply problematic, is that there will be a trickle down effects, so to speak. Of course. Um, and of course, um, but you'll see this among techno enthusiasts who point to technologies like the iPhone uh, and the fact that they become uh, more accessible and cheaper uh, over time and that this model will be reflected in other kinds of technologies. Um, this is obviously problematic. Um, I mean, I think you're right, and this is a question that's been raised quite a bit when we think about the practical issues. Uh, who will have access to these technologies? Will they function as just one more means for the rich to get richer? Um, and I think when we talk so much about the human in these really universal and abstract terms, we do tend to lose sight of the actual social and political situations of real people. Um, and so, I mean, it's hard to think of a solution to that, but, right, I think first and foremost, we need to think about who is weighing in on these issues and who is concerned about them, especially when we talk about public bioethics and presidential bioethics committees and federal regulation. And so thinking historically, because it is so important, as you suggest, to historicize this, um, we can look at the history of public, public bioethics, and which really starts to emerge in the 1970s. Um, and when we think about the goals of the discipline, it's to theorize and institute common moral principles, hmm. um, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, justice, um, for determining the ethics of biomedicine, uh, for all citizens, right? These are supposed to be universal ethical principles that can be applied in any context. But part of what I try to bring attention to, and you've mentioned your Foucauldian roots, is that consensus can also function as a mechanism of power that establishes normative ideals of the human and what it means to uh, have a life of human flourishing, a uh, life that is ethical, and so when we look at the membership of those committees and the kinds of discourses that we're producing uh, or they're producing, they for us, um, we can see that certain peoples and discourses are being excluded. And I actually think this trend tends to get reified through the idea, uh, the language of human nature, precisely because it is so universal and abstract. Um, I mean, the Bush administration is uh, an extreme example of this, but when we look at the membership on uh, the President's Council of Bioethics under Bush, we see it really is almost entirely uh, white, educated men uh, with a conservative leaning. Um, and 
this is supposed to speak to not only consensus between the members of the committee, but also supposedly consensus between the American people. Um, and so those committees are really ad hoc committees. They have no political power in and of themselves, but they create suggestions for regulation to political bodies. And so for me, this conversation about human nature, this conversation about biotechnologies, I think is an occasion to think about human nature as something that is multiple rather than singular. Uh, human nature means different things to different people. Um, and it operates in the world based on those meanings in different ways for different people. And so at least as a first step, there has to be a better aim to include marginalized groups, persons of color, non-heterosexual individuals, women, um, and also discourses, gender and race studies, disability studies, that have, in my opinion, really been underrepresented in the public sphere, um, either because they're politically subversive or they don't purport to have the sort of universal uh, sway um, that is hoped to gain, be gained out of that, uh, that space. Yeah, so what then, what are, what are the options then if we want to, if we're thinking about regulating these sorts of practices, but we also want to hold space for different conceptions of what it means to be human, then, then what is the, you know, what is the regulative solution there? Um, I mean, this is a bit of a dodge, but part of the point is that I alone, right, can't uh, propose a meaningful regulative oh, I solution. I see. <laughs> um, that's fair. Yeah, but I think it's hard to say. And, you know, middle ground bioethicists, I think, are right in the fact that we need to be thinking about questions of risk and access and safety. Um, but one of the issues is also uh, this takes place in a global and international context. Um, and so whatever regulation we have in the U.S. Um, is going to be limited when we think about the development of these technologies. And we're seeing that, I mentioned that, for example, China has much more lax policies and sees this as a major economic opportunity, um, which it is. Uh, and so in many ways that points to the limits of regulatory power um, and maybe the need for more uh, global uh, consensus agreements. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I think it's also about making sure so much of this work isn't completely outsourced to the, to the private sphere, to the free market. Um, making sure that bioethics committees, um, private or public, are really overseeing this work and thinking about the ethical implications. Um, keeping it as a live conversation um, where the philosophical, the ethical is coexisting and co-evolving with the technological and the material. Yeah, and I can see that becoming, you know, I hadn't really thought about international conflict in terms of genetic engineering before, but now, now this is a big concern in my life. I mean, it has been for about the last 20 seconds <laughs> since you said that. Um, but anyway, I'm, so I'm curious, I want to, uh, I don't want to run out of time before I ask you for your personal opinion on questions that are really hard to answer. So these kinds of technologies, is it fair to ask if they could make us less human? And what is your opinion on human nature and how, how we, how that might change? Like, can that change? Can we actually step outside the category of the human? What do you think? Um, I'm not sure if we can truly step outside the category, uh, but the category itself is always shifting. Um, and that's in meaningful ways in relation to our technologies. So one of the 
rare techno enthusiast positions I actually agree with is that humans have always been technological beings. Mm. Um, sometimes this is called technogenesis. Um, the theory goes that from fire to agriculture to railroads to computers, humans co-evolve with their tools. And in this sense, all social life is mediated by the use of technology uh, as a condition of its possibility. Um, in this sense, I really do think that the boundary between self and technology, culture and nature um, is constructed. And this is something you see in the work of people like Donna Haraway and Bruno Latour. Um, it's a frame for understanding and encountering the world, but not necessarily one that actually adheres in the natural world. And I think the information sciences really more and more do support this idea, suggesting that cognition is an extended and embodied process. The skin is more than anything a symbolic boundary. Yeah. Um, in other words, right, consciousness isn't something independent that just acts upon the world. Uh, it's formed in and through the relation with objects and environments. And so that's the broad theoretical perspective I'd like to start with. Um, but in terms of thinking about changes in the human, I think that also gives us a basis to historicize it, um, right? And I, I don't mean to flatten the effects of different technologies, uh, right? There are substantive differences between, say, the use of the iPhone and the use of germline genetic engineering. Um, but the fact is, you know, so much, uh, so often the language of the post-human is, or the inhuman is invoked in this conversation. But I think in reality, what we're going to see is that uh, the human uh, will continue to shift as a category. We will continue to reevaluate what we mean by human nature. And from an intellectual and historical perspective, we can see that it's rarely been consistent. Uh, what it means to be human uh, in medieval Christianity is different from what it means to be human in the liberal political tradition. Um, yeah, I mean, there are, I think it was Spinoza who said, we don't yet know what the body can do, you know, and we, I think, perhaps one way of thinking, if we're going to define human nature in any way, it is that it changes, right? And, and that would sort of, you know how people often say, the only thing that is constant is change. I can sort of see that sort of being applied to, to the human is that the only thing that we are consistent in is, is changing throughout time. And especially as our cultures have so radically, you know, um, multiplied and differentiated. And it's really interesting. And also I think having this view of change that you've been talking about in this view of inconsistency in the category, does this sort of negate the, all of the different rhetoric that people are sort of talking about and using in terms of human nature and advocating for their particular stance in terms of what happens with genetic engineering and other enhancement technologies? Do, does, does the power of, of these ideas about what it means to be human, does it melt away when we sort of embrace the fact that what it means to be human is always changing? In my opinion, uh, to a large extent, yes. Um, it encourages us to particularize and historicize their positions, uh, to not see them as continuing positions that have always existed, but as uh, part of the inheritance of certain intellectual histories. Um, that being said, those ideas of human nature, even in the assumption that they're universal, uh, are operative. They're doing work for those people. Um, they are real. Um, they are their human nature in the sense that uh, they represent their core values. Um, and inform their decisions about the use of technologies. Um, so, and it's the easy academic answer, but it really does encourage us, I think, to take a step back and try to think about them as what might be called, you know, first order terms, um, in terms of what people believe. Um, and then we can, 
analyze them using our own second order terms. Um, thinking about them as something subject to and in need of analysis based on the analytical tools that we have. For example, from a Foucauldian perspective, thinking about it in terms of discourse and power. Uh, but as far as really being applicable to all people in terms of actually capturing human nature as a universal, um, yeah, I think to a large extent they are negated. Um, so those solutions may work for certain people, but there will never be the solution or the answer to the question of what human nature is. Yeah. Uh, because when we ask what human nature is, I think more often we're asking what it means to be human. Um, and a lot of time it's actually phrased as the latter. Um, and that question of, you know, that, that word, that language of means and meaning is really important because part of what I'm arguing uh, is that human nature is a kind of historical and social construct. And that doesn't mean it's not real. That doesn't mean it's just imagined. Um, but it means that by the time we ponder what it means to be human, by the time we ask about our own nature, it's always already internal to our cultural attitudes and beliefs and dispositions, and for that matter, embodied practices and habits. And so trying to remove that question from specific contexts is just so problematic. Yeah, and this this idea of human nature, it's actually, it's deeply spiritually important to mm. many people, right? It's sort of very central to, I would guess, most religious traditions, right? Like, talk, because it's it's there and you're talking about meaning, again, like the significance of what it means to be human is something that we necessarily are wrestling with when, when we enact our spiritualities. And so in this sense, like people are actually pretty attached to their concepts of human nature. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And again, this is what I think makes this conversation so interesting. It forces people to really make this explicit mm -hmm. and forces them to double down. Uh, to take a certain kind of leap. Um, very few people in my experience uh, are willing to kind of take an agnostic or provisional attitude um, about what it means to be human and, you know, how we should think about modifying human nature. Um, it is sort of one of the fundamental questions when we think about traditions of spirituality and religion. Uh, and again, I don't I don't like to, uh, you know, draw on sort of common themes or essences, but uh, just in my own experience studying the history of religion, I, I do think these are questions that are pretty ubiquitous, right? Um, what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to act ethically uh, in terms of our human choices uh, in terms of the future of our humanity. Um, and so there is in that sense, I think, an intrinsic spiritual or religious characteristic to this whole debate, whether or not it's taking place in ostensibly secular language, which it is not always at all. Right, right. Um, okay, so we're sort of coming up on time. I'm wondering if there is anything that you have left that you would like to say or think that it is important that we discuss or no? It's okay to say no. Everybody, most people say no. <laughs> um, I mean, I think just to reaffirm my main point, which is that besides thinking of human nature as something that is historically and socially constructed, we need to think of it as something that is multiple. Uh, I draw a lot on post-human theorists uh, or post-humanist theorists um, who, because they recognize the boundaries between humans and their others as constructed, uh, have a tendency or desire to want to dissolve the human subject as a sort of locus of inquiry um, and basically make the kind of the term, the concept of human nature uh, useless, so to speak. Um, 
I don't necessarily think that's the avenue that we should take. I think the idea of human nature provides a really useful, uh, what Jay-Z Smith might call disciplinary horizon. Um, at the same time, we can work to uh, mess with the boundaries of that term, mess with the meanings of that term, um, and think about what it would mean to use and interrogate the category of human nature, not as something that is singular and universal, um, but as something that is multiple, that means different things to different people at different times, um, and does real work in those situations. If we try to leave behind that language entirely, um, then we're also missing uh, the kind of work that that category does in the world. That was really beautiful. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, that's, that's actually, that's, that's really lovely. And this has been really enlightening for me. So that's great. Yeah, thank um, you so much. Yeah, I love thank the idea you. of this podcast. I love being on this podcast. And yeah, I look forward to staying in touch. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, do you, it's funny. So I have a history in, in working in the health sphere. I work in women's health. And at the end of those podcasts, everybody always talks about the social media like they tell you where all their promotional materials are, you know, and usually there's a very long list of my Facebook, my Instagram, my books, my program, you know, like all this stuff. And when I do this podcast, I ask people like, where are they doing their promotion? Everybody's like, well, I have an academia.edu account. Um, yeah. well, so do you have anywhere where you keep things that you like people for people to read or write? You can also absolutely say no. Yeah, well, maybe since I spent a good five minutes lambasting social media, it's fitting <laughs> that uh, I try to really limit my academic presence online. Um, and so uh, I would say no. Um, you know, okay, just listen to this podcast on repeat then. <laughs> yeah, feel free to Google me. I love talking to strangers interested in my work. Google me, email me at my Columbia address. Um, tell me about events. Um, and other than that, I guess, look forward to the book that will hopefully come out of this dissertation in a couple of years. Okay, that sounds great. Thank you so much. And everybody, um, y'all know where you can find me. It's Stephanie Ruber on Facebook, on Instagram, and the website and the podcast and all of that. Um, so thank you so, so much for listening. And thank you again, Joe. This was really fantastic. Mm -hmm.